Dr. Fisher, thank you so much for taking some time for us today. You have been on the road very frequently lately, uh, attending the NC Bio event, uh, the Innovation Jam at the Duke Institute for Health Innovation, and several gastroenterology meetings across the country on behalf of the DCRI. Tell me, in, in your attendance at those meetings, have there been any themes to emerge? Are there commonalities amongst the discussions? I think if there is a theme with any of them, it might be the big data theme, that there are a lot of data out there, and if you have the access and you have the tools and the methodology to work with it, that this can have far-reaching um, applications. And so the most directly related to that was the NC Bio meeting um, here in the Triangle. It was interesting because really many of the same um, considerations go across applications. You know, the fact that the data are often um, you know, dirty, or as they say, that you have to do a lot of data cleaning before you can really get useful information, longitudinal data, who owns the data, so governance. Um, and linking data from different sources and those challenges. Um, so really, you know, it's very interesting, you know, while each group has some particulars, um, that there's some definitely are commonalities in, you know, some of the barriers and some of the opportunities. So that was interesting. And I would say that that also had a similar theme with the Duke Institute for Health Innovation, DHI, that we were fortunate to be selected as one of six teams to present to investors, and these were Duke investors. And while our project isn't really big data, it, it does involve data, our project is the development of a new um, optical sensor that could be used at the time of colonoscopy to as an aid for detection of abnormalities and in particular dysplasia. So it involves an algorithm and data collection from the sensors, which would be working behind the scenes and it, when it gets to clinical use, the output to the endoscopist would be something like high risk, medium risk, low risk, or you know something like that, some um, qualitative, it wouldn't be all the data. Tell me why, how that kind of, that project, that op optical sensor came about. What was it that, that you and your colleagues were observing in the clinic? We had talked about, you know, one of our problems in gastroenterology is while standard white light, high definition um, endoscopy is very good, we, we do miss polyps and in the situation where we have flat abnormalities, so inflammatory bowel disease, Barrett's esophagus, we end up taking random biopsies looking for this dysplasia for really um, when there's fields of at-risk tissue. So patient has this condition, puts them at risk for cancer, we end up going in and taking really random biopsies because we're not very good at finding these changes when it's flat. So the idea is that this would be a tool to be used at the time of endoscopy to really target um, the biopsies better and better note dysplasia. And that's where that started. Let's move on uh, kind of down, down the road a little bit or, or up the road, as the case may be, on your travels to um, presenting at the American College of Gastroenterology. Um, you were talking there about some screening guidelines. Can you tell me what, what you shared with that group? 
So that was great. I was on a panel and with Brooks Cash and Doug Robertson, who I've known for years. And uh, this was specifically about the colon cancer screening guidelines and really motivated because the American Cancer Society released new guidelines just ahead of our spring meeting, Digestive Diseases Week, recommending that average risk people start their screening at 45 instead of 50. And this really wasn't based on new data. It was based on new modeling of existing data. So here we are again, big data modeling what you can do with it. And of course, it's, um, you know, when it's new analysis of the same data, that's not the same as a new study that really sheds more light on something. I think it's a lot more controversial. There was a very recently published story where they had a group of people, um, all experts, all had the same research question, all had access to the same data set. And depending on the assumptions they made in their analysis, came out with effect sizes that were not statistically significant at all to, you know, several, you know, three, four odds ratio things that are generally, you know, not only statistically significant, but often clinically significant. So obviously there's a whole lot that happens behind the curtain. But nonetheless, they took the same data that we had and used the same group that had done the modeling for the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines, which had decided um, 50 to 75 universal colon cancer screening, 76 to 84 on a case-by-case basis, um, and then above the age of 85 not to do any screening. And they, you know, found that there was, a, you know, benefit for decreasing the screening rate. And the other that motivated them was the fact, and this is, you know, well accepted and established, so the rate of colorectal cancer, particularly the rectal cancer subtype, has been increasing in people under 50. So the overall rates of colon cancer and rectal cancer have been uh, decreasing actually for decades in the 50 and older group, but there seems to be a birth cohort effect such that the people who are currently under 50 actually have increased risk. Um, This again comes a little bit to understanding statistics and results, numeracy, because while the relative rate is increased, the absolute number of people who have cancer and are younger than 50 is less than 10% of the cancers. So it's a smaller absolute number, even though it's on the rise. And really, we're not sure why. Um, There's some thought it might be related to increased obesity, particularly in younger people. And there's um, a pretty established link between obesity and many cancers, including colon cancer. But the bottom line is we have limited data. We know this is a group that's at risk. We don't know that starting screening earlier is actually going to impact um, their cancer-related death. And so we uh, had a panel that discussed the evidence behind screening, then going through the different guidelines. Um, There's a third one, multi-society task force, 
along with U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and the American Cancer Society. And in some ways, they agree, the 50 to 75 screening agree, but how you screen, whether you screen earlier, comments on when to potentially stop, all variable. And then in the third part, which was the part I presented, was taking this information and applying it to cases in a case discussion. So I created some cases to really look at these different issues to help people think about applying it. And we went through those. And then we had a question and answer session with the attendees. I want to close out by talking a little bit about uh, your presentation around patient engagement recently. Um, involving social media, which is a medium in which you're very comfortable um, and have been a leader on within the DCRI. So tell us about that panel, which I believe was with another colleague from Duke GI as well. Yes. Yeah, so um, Ziad Jalad and was a co-director for an AGA course, American Gastrological Association, uh, Partners in Value. So this was really looking at um, people in practice and had a wide variety of topics um, some of them were very data related, like why you should uh, collect data, quality metrics, um, things like that. There were a lot of different talks about you know, the health economics right now in that environment. But my particular talk was social media around uh, patient engagement and clinical care. And this really was a variation on um, some of the other social media talks I've given, but if the goal is to potentially reach patients, so I always feel I, that before you dive in, you know, particularly individual practices or people, they need to know what they're trying to accomplish. Why are they diving into the world of social media and what are they trying to accomplish? And part of that is who's their audience and then checking, you know, is it working? So presented some information that, of course, patients are all over the Internet looking at medical information, looking at ratings for doctors and hospitals. So they're definitely out there how you might want to engage with them, realizing that if your audience is the patient population, you need to be on platforms where the patients are, um, which isn't necessarily Twitter, which is, I think, where a lot of and healthcare professionals and researchers and policy and uh, media folks are on Twitter, but not necessarily the patients as much. Thank you again, Dr. Fisher, for taking some time to talk with me this morning and for representing the DCRI at these various events uh, across the state and the country. Um, I wish you the best throughout the rest of your fall. Thank you so much.